So 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 today. I'm going to read verses 8 through 16 just to remind us of the of where we're at in the context and the flow of the letter. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and the works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures." to their own destructions. Father, please help us today as we look into Your Word, Lord. Help us to help me to communicate it and help Your people to receive it, Lord, with understanding and an application to our hearts and lives. And we pray that Christ and Him alone will be glorified today. Amen. So by way of introduction, guys, I'm going to read a, a page or two out of the Valley of Vision. And uh, again, this is um, just prayers from uh, different Puritans that sometimes are really helpful. They really minister to the heart. So I, I'm reading a, a, a page, it's two pages on on the second coming. <clears throat> but I thought I thought this prayer, in large part, fits the the spirit of this passage that we're reading today. So the second coming, it says, "O Son of God and Son of Man." Thou wast incarnate, didst suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thy word, promises, sacraments show thy death until thou come again. That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me, thy love animates me, thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. Waited for thee, and not waited in vain. Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul. By a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the waters in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. <clears throat> this corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality. This natural body, a spiritual body. This dishonored body, a glorious body. This weak body, a body of power. Can you hear the hope and anticipation of of the coming of Christ? 
I triumph now in thy promises as, as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the, or beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. <coughs> every, every event and circumstance in my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, of disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for thine elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. And so, I think this Puritan, whoever it was that penned that prayer, was just really what we're talking about here. What we looked at last week in verse 11. Remember he said, since all these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? That's really the theme of today's message too. He's continuing that thought. And so this Puritan, he's, he's anticipating the, the return of Christ, right? And, and we know that uh, even when he's speaking about language of, of judgment and being accountable, we know that for the believer, guys, there's no condemnation, right? Christ bore our, our penalty, the penalty for our sin in His body. But even as, even as believers, we know that um, our life here matters. It's more, it's more by way of rewards, loss of rewards, what we do in this life matters. And, and so you could just hear the heart of that in that prayer that He wants to be ready when the Lord returns. He is anticipating in hope, not in dread, right? If, if you dread the second coming of Christ, guys, I would you know, encourage you, anybody, to examine your heart. Because as the people of God, we should anticipate that day. Amen? Our sins have been paid for on the cross in full and the very One who paid for our sin is the one who is returning to gather us to himself. Different understandings of how exactly that may look at the end, and we're probably all going to be in error, but he is going to gather his church to himself and judge the wicked, and then we're going to be with him forever. And it's a glorious thought. And so that's, it should, again, the, the, that was the heart of his prayer. That's the heartbeat of this passage, I believe, is that his second coming, when we anticipate, What's going to happen, it should have a major impact on the way we live here and now. Which will have an impact on our eternity. And that when we stand before Him and we cast our crowns at His feet, and just in, in adoration and love at, at the One who died for us. So with that by way of introduction, guys, if you have your bulletin, if you want to follow along on the back, the truth that I want to propose to you today to think about, to sum up what we're looking at is this. You will be found by Christ. Okay? And again, apply it to your own life. Not not humanity. Not all of those people out there. Not even all of us in here. But you and, and me. You will be found by Christ. Either walking in the truth, which leads to salvation, or distorting the truth, which leads to destruction. And so that's that's what we're going to kind of see in this in this passage today. Is how the title of the message. How will Christ find you when that day comes? How will, that, how will Christ find you? And obviously, any, any pastor, um, I, I guess you could say worth his salt, <laughs> that's the desire of the heart is for their people to be, to be found by Christ and, and loving Him and adoring Him. I mean, I think I heard Vody Bauckham say one time that that's the job of a pastor is to prepare his people for eternity. Not just to be saved, 
But like we talked about last week, to be, to be not ashamed on that day when that time comes. To not stand before Christ and say, man, I, yes, I'm saved, but man, I, I just kind of wasted my life. So I, I, I would never want that for any of us. Make the most of this life living for Christ. And so, three points today. Uh, for, the, for, the, for the believer, how will Christ find you? First of all, guys, I think verse 14 teaches that we need to be found in godly anticipation of His coming. In godly anticipation. In verse 14. So the points will be... Point 1 will be 14. I've got it listed out to the side. Point number 2 is verse 15. Point number 3 is 16. There's a little overlap with 2 and 3, but I'll deal with that when I I get there. But the first point we see in, in verse 14. Therefore, he says, Therefore, beloved... Since you look for these things, <clears throat> be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. So, th- so he says, therefore, obviously, uh, going back to what we looked at before, really this whole passage, but therefore, beloved, since you, since you look for these things, look for what things? Well, everything that He said above. The Lord's return, right? Since you look for these things, remember we said it, we saw this looking for the, for the believer in verse 12 and verse 13 and today in verse 14 that we're to, be, we're to be looking for Him. We're to be anticipating Him. And so since you look for these things, since you look for these things, the Lord's return and everything that entails, right? The judgment of the wicked. The, the, our, our points last week, the suddenness of it, right? He's going to come like a thief. And that's more for the... That's more for the unbelieving world that it's going to come on them completely unexpectedly because at least we don't know when it's going to happen. But at least we should be anticipating it. And so there's going to be a suddenness of it. There's going to be a finality of it when He comes and destroys this present creation and and then the glory of it where we left off last week. When He brings in the new heavens and the new earth where it says in verse 13 or in which righteousness dwells. That is the part of the new heavens and the new earth that you and I as believers should anticipate, should long for. The redeemed heart longs for that place where there's no more sin. There's no more unrighteousness. There's no more wickedness. There's no more injustice. There's, it's, it, it's the place where righteousness dwells. It means that's the permanent place forever for God's righteousness. And so the wicked, they don't desire that. That's a good way to examine your heart, to examine our hearts for any person, is if um, when, you, when we really understand what heaven is going to be like, this place where righteousness dwells, the wicked, they look at that as rather kind of boring, right? You're not going to have your sin there. No, but the righteous, that, we long for that. We, we hate sin in general. We hate our sin. And we long for that place where righteousness dwells. And it says, be diligent. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, His return and and, and the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Be diligent. You know, he's mentioned that word. If you guys remember way back in chapter 1, he mentioned that same word, be diligent. Three times in verse 5, verse 10, verse 15 of chapter 1. And if you guys remember, it was making a strong effort Make a strong effort back then. He's talking about pursuing godliness to make your calling and election sure. 
We need to, he says, be diligent to be found in Him. And so this making a strong effort, guys, I think you guys would all agree that, that we are diligent, right? We will be diligent. We will make strong efforts in preparing for that which we deem as important in life. Anything in life, right? If we think, if we think something's important, we're going to be diligent in preparing for that. I remember when I played football in school, my dad taught me uh, that in, in August, during football practice, we're going to be running a lot of wind sprints, all these two-a-days, the temperature's 100 degrees. He said, so you can do it one of two ways. You can prepare for that by running and getting in shape in the summer, or you can just face that day and deal with the difficulty. Well, I was very diligent to be prepared for football practice. I was always one of the guys in shape because I didn't want to die. And so you think of, uh, you know, I think of somebody like Josh and Rachel, others, Rocky, there's others who have been through lots and lots of schooling. You know, and you have your exams. You want to be diligent in your preparation because you know that that exam is important. What about, what about, uh, what about getting ready for a date, right, and you're with your loved one? Remember back, back then, guys, maybe with your spouse when you were dating or, uh, you know, I don't know, Carl maybe, you know. But when we think about, we, we deem something as important, right? Man, I want, I want to be ready. You know, I, I didn't just, when Trish and I first started out, I didn't just like, you know, I don't need a shower. I can just throw these clothes on. And she knows I'm not like a, I'm not like a clean freak. But when it came to, uh, man, I'm going to spend time with my, the, the woman that I, that I love. Right? You're diligent in preparations. You're home if you're going to have company. You want to be diligent to pick up that mess, right? And these kind of things. Just, just everyday things that we see, see as important. We make every effort, right, to prepare. That's what he's saying. Be diligent to be found in Him. What more could be important to, be, to being ready for the, for the Lord's return? To stand before Him, right? Whether He comes or whether we go to Him first. We want to be diligent as God's people. Not just that I'm saved. Praise God, that is the most important. Which is the very next point we're going to see. Um, so, so, so to be diligent, to be diligent, to be found by Him in Peace, spotless and blameless. So that, that peace, I think that's speaking about, because uh, there's different, when we, when we see the word peace, it can be referring to different things, but I think it has to be, when we ask that question, uh, the title of the message, how will Christ find you, right? Because it says you're going to be to be found in Him. Um, first of all, before we even talk about that peace, is it, just that phrase, guys, in verse 14. Be diligent, be diligent to be found by Him. Is that not a sobering thought? That, that you will be found by Him? He's not going to miss anybody. You will be found by Him. And, Matt, and, and what a plea to the lost. You're going to be found by Him. Are you ready for that day? You know, Paul reminds us of that in Romans 2.16. On that day... Speaking of the same day we're talking about, on that day, Paul says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through who? Christ Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, all of the secrets are going to be laid bare. You will be found by Him. 
And so that brings us to the next race. But how? How do we want to be found by Him as the people of God? Peter says, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. That starts by having peace with God. Okay? We must have peace with God, guys, if we're going to be ready to stand before Him. And there's only one way to have peace with God. Paul reminds us of that in Colossians 1.20, speaking about Christ, says, having made peace through the blood of His cross. That's where, that's where Christ could offer reconciliation between holy God and sinful men. Because we're not, we don't come into this world in peace with God. We are in enmity with God. But through the blood of the cross, that's so important, through the blood of the cross, all of the, all of the Old Testament animal sacrifices, what it was a picture of the blood of the cross, There is no remission of sin apart from the shedding of blood. The blood of the cross is where you and I have peace with God through His work on the cross. Not the unbloody sacrifice of the wafer on the Roman Catholic Mass. Which does not bring peace to any soul. But only deception. Only... uh, It's just it's blasphemous. No, it's through the blood of the cross that we have peace with God through His work, through His one-time sacrifice. You and I can have peace with God. Paul speaks more to that in Romans 5.1. He says, uh, since we have been justified by faith, right? By faith, not works. No works of the law. No efforts of man. Since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to have peace with God. But a result of having peace with God, then we have the peace of God. The peace of God's Spirit. Right? As He bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. Romans 8.16 But that's not going to happen until a person has peace with God. Until they're saved. Until they're justified. Until their sins are forgiven. Until they're reconciled to God. We didn't have, But then we have the peace of God. Which then... Leads us to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 9 and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, that's going to describe those who have who have found peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. They are now peacemakers. And that's got a couple different uh, meanings as well. We're peacemakers now. Now we we God, we are God's means. By proclaiming the gospel that, that this world can have peace with God. That, that sinners can be reconciled to God. We are peacemakers. We, we have been sent out as God's ambassadors pleading with sinners that you would be reconciled to God. That's a peacemaker. And also, because we have been forgiven, now we are able to forgive those who, who offend us. We're peacemakers between, between holy God and sinful men and between one another. We can... Our, our, our lives should be described as, as those of peacemakers. And so we're only... And then the next phrase, guys, we're to be found in peace. The NAS has it in that order. Um, peace and then spotless and blameless. <clears throat> really the, the, the same principle we just looked at with that word peace. We, we know that we're only truly spotless and blameless through Christ. Amen? That's the only way we're truly spotless and blameless. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 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 Because we know that when we 
repent of our sins and we place our faith in Him, God imputes His righteousness to our account and we are declared righteous through His righteousness, by His righteousness. But I think this even goes further than that because I think he's talking to the believers here. So this is describing as well our diligence, again, in living a godly life, practically here on earth. A godly life, imitating our Lord. Imitating our Lord. Peter says in in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 19, speaking of Jesus, describes Him as a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And so again, that's where, positionally speaking, we are blameless before God because we have His righteousness credited to us. But even in our life, that's what we should be pursuing. That godly life that He talked about in verse 11, right? That holy conduct, that godliness. As compared to the mockers who He's been describing, the false teachers. It's almost a direct opposition or an exact Exactly 180 degrees in the opposite direction. In 2 Peter 2.13, he describes these men as stains and blemishes, if you guys remember that. Stains and blemishes, literally dirt spots and scabs. You think of an infected scab or a dirt spot. That's that's how God describes these, these false teachers, these mockers. And we're to be just the opposite. So what is Peter saying, guys, in, the, in, this, in this section here? What is Peter saying right here? Back to what I stated last time. Our eschatology, right? It's just the, 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 the study of end things. Whether we're, whether we're studying or just reflecting on it, the, 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 the reality of His return should affect and does affect our lifestyle. It affects our lifestyle. Again, that's exactly what He said in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, right? At His return, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? There's a direct corollary to what we believe about His return and the way it affects our life. The way it affects our life. It leads us to live a godly life when we anticipate these things. And it also affects their way of life. Speaking of the mockers, we see that as well. That's what we've been talking about throughout this letter. Their ungodly lifestyle is directly related to what it says. Look at look look up in the verse verse three in this chapter. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days these mockers will come with their mocking, and we know what their mocking is, mocking this, the return of Christ. But look what it says: following after their own lusts. You see how their view of eschatology. Uh, Determines how they live? Well, yeah, there's no coming. There's no final judgment. Christ is not going to return. And, and, I, you know, and I've been saved by grace. I believe in Jesus. Then we just, we just fulfill, we follow our lusts. It literally, it literally means they're, they're, their lusts lead them. That's what describes their life, living in lust and greed and all those passages we looked at. So what you believe, what you and I believe will determine how we live. What a person believes will determine how they live. I think of the verse in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Usually we stop there. The very next phrase says, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are abominable. That describes their life. The corrupt. The ones who say there is no God, you can mark it down. 
If you could peek into their life, it's filthy, it's abominable to God. Because that's what that leads to. So, so what we believe about these things, our belief, in other words, our beliefs determine our behaviors. Or our behaviors are directly related to what we believe. And so these things, what you believe will determine how you live and where ultimately you will spend eternity. So, to point number one of verse 14, be found, beloved, be found. Looking, okay? If Christ were to return today, that's the point. If Christ were to return today, or if he, or if he took you home today, be found looking. Be found looking and anticipating being with Him. With an anticipation described, I think, as a godly anticipation. That's what we see in this first verse. Be found in godly anticipation. Secondly, we see in verse 15, really 15 and part of verse 16, be found in grateful proclamation. Be found in grateful proclamation. Look at verse uh, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. We'll just stop there for just a moment. He's really repeating this for emphasis, uh, the reason for His delay that we looked at a few weeks ago. So, as opposed to what the mockers say in verse 4. Remember their argument? Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. He hasn't come back yet, so obviously He's not going to. No. What did He say in verse 9? The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's repeating that very thing here in verse 15. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. <clears throat> how should we respond to God's patience, guys? That's what, that's what we look at. How should, we, how should you and I respond to God's patience? We should be grateful, first of all, for our salvation. We should be grateful that God was patient with us. Whenever it was that God saved you, I hope you never let a day go by that you don't thank God for that. Because guys, He didn't have to. And He is so patient. When we think about what we deserve, when we think about that, God would have been just in, in giving us the death penalty in our sleep because we've sinned against Him. He would not do that which is unjust. But praise be to God, He's gracious, He's merciful, and He's patient. So first of all, I think you should be grateful for your own salvation, the fact that God was patient with you. As you reflect on our sin, it's a healthy thing, beloved, it's a healthy thing to reflect on our sin and what we deserve. That's a healthy thing because it magnifies the cross. Magnifies the cross. It's healthy to remember what you were saved from, right? What were we saved from? Well, we were saved from the consequences of our sin. We were saved from hell. And so it's always a healthy thing to remind our... When we talk about reminding ourselves of the Gospel, that's what we mean. Preaching the Gospel to ourselves, that's what we mean. This is what I deserve, but, but God had mercy upon me. God demonstrated His love that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And so we're going to come back to that, that patience part here in just a moment. Um, but let's look at this. He, he, he's talking about, he, he talks about Paul for a moment. Well, really, that's where he finishes at. But, uh, so we're going to come back to that patience in just a moment. 
But he says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Okay, we're going to address that little section here. First of all, I think it's, it's good to note that Peter describes Paul. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul. That's real important. Because 20 years earlier, guys, in the book of Galatians, Paul rebuked Peter in Antioch for his hypocrisy. Peter was um, eating with the Gentile believers with no problem until the, 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 these Jewish leaders, the Judaizers, came in. And then hypocritically, he started separating himself from them in fear of the Jews. And so Paul rebuked him. You can read about it in Galatians 2, around verse 19, I believe, in that area. But this is roughly 20 years later, and the relationship seems great. Uh, Paul mentions Peter many times in his letters, and obviously the, there's mutual affection. I think this is just good to note. Uh, we see these two apostles, men of God, being able to, Peter showing humility, right? Um, that, that true love corrects. And so I think it's, it's, it's worthy to note that. He calls him our beloved brother, right? Brother in Christ, fellow apostle. So obviously there's no grudge. Obviously, Peter humbly received correction, which is an example to us. An example to us. But he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look... Or, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in his letters, speaking of these things, wrote to you. Now, this is one of those things, we don't know exactly what writings he's talking about that these particular believers would have known, so would have received, so there's no reason to spend too much time speculating about it. But we do know uh, that we can see different times in Paul's epistles that it states that his letters, that he desired his, that his letters would circulate throughout the churches. And so this is a lot of the same region, this Asia Minor region. So they were definitely... Uh, privy to some of Paul's letters. But what is Peter saying about Paul? Um, again, it's hard to tell exactly that the, the, the teaching that they would have been that he would have been they, he was referring to that they had received from Paul, but it has to fit the context of what Peter's describing here. Because look at the words again. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So it's, so it's dealing with the same topics. The, 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 the second coming of Christ, maybe the patience of the Lord, uh, anticipating uh, God living a holy life, these type of things. But I think, again, the Lord's patience and salvation is definitely something that they're referring to. For example, for example Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we see Paul dealing with this exact same issue, God's patience? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that's a, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So we see Paul dealing with, with the kindness and the patience of God. He, he, he talks about the wisdom according to the wisdom given him, given Paul. So I'm going to read a, a couple things here and, and then just kind of tie it together to what I think Peter may be saying, uh, may be describing what, their, uh, what, what they had received from Paul's writings. The wisdom given him. 
Obviously, there's, there's so many places that Peter could be thinking of in Paul's writings, but just a few here. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, We proclaim Him. You can see the heart of the Apostle Paul here. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That was Paul's heartbeat in his ministry. To proclaim the Gospel so that sinners would be saved and then to see them mature and grow into maturity. Every man complete. Every man mature in Christ. We know what the proverb says, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what? I go stick my head in a hole and, 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 and uh, don't reach out to people? No, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, Paul's heart was always proclaiming the Gospel to others. That's wisdom, guys. This is wisdom. Paul feared the Lord. He didn't keep the Gospel to himself. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul says, "...in Christ in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge." So I'm just trying to tie some of this stuff together that he could have been referring to. Uh, Paul understood this, guys. Paul understood the fear of the Lord because he understood his sin. That's wisdom right there. When we understand what sin really is, when we understand our sin, we begin to fear the Lord, which, which leads us to wisdom. He referred to himself as the chief of sinners, Paul did. And that Jesus Christ, in the same verse, came to save sinners. Again, this is what drove the Apostle Paul as an apostle, was taking the Gospel to these regions who had never heard and then seeing them grow into maturity. And so I just want to ask you by way of application, does the proclamation of Christ drive you like it does Paul? Like it did Paul? Does the proclamation of Christ drive you? And see, this is where I think back to that phrase um, that we can make application of this and regard the in verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Paul understood this. Paul understood the patience of Christ and what he do in response to that. He proclaimed the Gospel to as many as he could because he understood God is patient. God is patient. And, and, and we should regard that patience as salvation for His people to come. He used His time. This is the age of grace and proclaiming the Gospel. Now is the day of salvation. God is patient with you now. Paul was grateful. And Paul understood the patience of God, meaning salvation to sinners. I think that's what the connection is here. And so, beloved, are you grateful? Are you grateful, first of all, for the Lord saving you? Amen? Understanding God's patience with you and bringing you to Christ for being patient with you. And does that motivate you, as we see in the Apostle Paul's life, does that motivate you to warn others by proclaiming Christ? Paul says we proclaim Him. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade men. It's because I understand the fear of the Lord like I didn't before. I understand 
The fear of the Lord. I think another translation says the terror of the Lord. Understanding the terror of the Lord, what's coming for sinners. It should motivate us. We should regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Not just for us, but for others. Because the time is going to run out one day. And so that should drive us. We should, we should be found in grateful proclamation. First of all, grateful for His patience in our life, which leads us to grateful proclamation. That should be the heart of any evangelist. When I say evangelist, I don't mean like somebody that has the office of an evangelist, but any Christian who is reaching out to people with the gospel, it should be, it should come from gratefulness. That God has saved me by His grace. That I am a beggar. I have found the bread and I am so grateful and I want you to know that too. That's the heart here. So be found, guys, in godly anticipation. And be found in grateful proclamation. And thirdly, in verse 16, be found rejecting all that God calls an abomination. All that God calls an abomination. Simply meaning that which is hated. Those things that God hates. Whether it be false teaching or whether it be ungodly living. These things that God hates. Be found rejecting those things that God calls an abomination. So verse 16. Again, we don't know exactly what Peter's referring to when he, when he says these things about Paul's writings. Uh, he says, according to the wisdom given him, Paul wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. I, w- I would say that the conclusion I came to, I came probably to a different conclusion than before I had studied this text. You know, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Romans 9 and the deep things of the sovereignty of God, but I don't think that fits the context here. So I think you'll maybe understand what, what I and, and others uh, think he's referring to when we just look at the context of the passage. Um, I think it's best understood as, as having to do with, with the day of the Lord, uh, with God's patience towards sinners, and, and, and us pursuing holiness. That's what we're talking about here in this text. So whatever, he, whatever these things are that are hard to understand in Paul's writings, I believe it has to do with these things. The day of the Lord, God's patience towards sinners, and how that relates to, to Christians pursuing holiness, which is Peter's subject in this passage. Paul writes about these things. And this is precisely what these mockers are distorting. Who, are, who it says they are untaught and unstable. These men, these mockers. I'm just going to read it again. Speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. And so... First of all, we know that these mockers are specifically distorting the teaching about why Christ hasn't returned. We can see that very clearly. They're distorting it. Oh, he, he hasn't returned, you know, and you guys have been saying this, and he hasn't, nothing's ever changed, so he's not going to. So guess that guess what that would lead them to? Ungodly living, turning the grace of God into a license to sin. And throughout this letter, 
we see the kind of life they live. Just to be reminded, guys, of these men and their life, these mockers who distort the second coming of Christ. Listen to... uh, You don't have to turn there, but you can jot them down if you'd like. But chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. If you guys remember that, Peter was saying, we didn't follow these made-up stories, these lies, like these mockers give, right? They just make up stories. They just make up tales. So their teaching is false. Their teaching is off. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, these, he says, False prophets also arose among you. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So we see the, the, that these abominable teachings, even denying the Master who bought them, remember that? Just refusing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Guys, that goes on in our day all over the place. Men and women distort the grace of God and turn it into a license to sin. That's what they do here, and that's what these men were doing. Many will follow their sensuality, right? Their sensuality. And in verse 3, their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But their destruction is not asleep. See, they're greedy, they're lustful. Verses 9 and 10 says these are kept for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Can you see how their awful teaching results in awful living? That's what we're seeing here. Verses 13 and 14. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Again, they are stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deception. Having eyes full of adultery. Verse 14. Never ceasing from sin. These are the men who distort God's Word. I hope you can see the connection. They distort God's Word and it leads to ungodly, abominable living. In verse 18 and 19, we see it continue. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, uh, promising people freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. So these men distort the truth of God's Word. And, and, he, and he says, they, 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 uh, he calls them untaught and unstable, and they distort Paul's thing, Paul's words. So in other words, they're distorting writings of the Apostle Paul that have to deal with these same subjects. And so I think at the heart of it, when you, when, you, when you look at this, I think at the heart of it, what Peter is saying, I don't think it's the deep things that they're distorting Paul's writings, like the, the sovereign election and these things. That's what I used to think when I'd read that. But I think it's very simple. I think at the heart of this twisting is that they're twisting and distorting Paul's teaching on grace and justification through faith. I think that's what's going on here. They're distorting it. Does it not happen today, guys? Does it not happen today? Yes, I have been saved by grace. And but what are these people saying? And and I'm and, and, and you guys have probably all met those people. I've just happened to meet them all the time preaching on the streets. And they hear you preaching about things like repentance, right? And, and following after Christ. And they come by and their distortion of the grace of God with their middle finger up saying, I'm a Christian too. I'm saved by grace. And they are doing exactly... They are, they are misrepresenting Paul's teaching. And they are doing exactly what these men are doing. They're using the grace of God as a justification for ungodly living, which is the furthest thing from what Paul taught 
If we know what he, if we remember what he taught in Romans six, right? Should we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? He said, "God forbid. May it never be." And it says they they don't they do this not only with Paul's letter but the rest of the scriptures. And just on a side note, we've dealt with that verse before in equipping hour. We know that Peter is saying he is equating Paul's letters with scripture right there in that verse. But it says they do this. They twist God's Word. They distort God's Word. Peter's saying they do it with the New Testament Scriptures, with Paul's letters, and they do it with the Old Testament. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this passage. I think he's right on. He said they were abusing Paul's teaching on justification by faith and freedom from the law to enjoy a life of moral laxity. Paul taught justification by faith and that we're free from the law, so we can just go indulge in sin because we're free and we're forgiven. That's not what Paul taught. That's not what being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone means at all. And so I want to turn to a a passage. If you guys will turn there, we're going to close here. I don't know. Again, we don't know what writings that these believers were aware of that, that... Paul had written. But look at Titus. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Whether this was a passage or not that he was referring to, I think it fits the context perfectly. Because, guys, I want want to remind you of something before I read this passage. How does he describe these mockers? It it says, which the... uh, Paul speaking in them of these things. I think that, that gives the context that Paul he's referring to these same topics. It says, "...in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort." The reason it's hard for, for the untaught to understand simple things like justification by faith and how that, how that is lived out in the life of a believer, because, because I think this word untaught is simply meaning those who have not been regenerated. Those who have not been taught by God don't have any discernment on what it means to be a Christian in the Christian life. Think about it. And then then we'll read Titus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen? We're not against good works, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we have been prepared for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We believe that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. But that, but that as a result, we, we desire and we walk in good works because we love Christ. Think about the two extremes. Think about the people he's dealing with here. The antinomians. What do they say? Oh, you preach that we're saved by works because we, they hear us saying, you must repent. You must be following after Christ. And they say, oh no, I'm saved by grace. And I can, I can live in all kinds of debauchery and, and it's by grace. That's a false teaching. That's a distortion of God's grace. Then you have the other extreme, right? The legalists. Whether it be the Roman Catholics, whether it be the Mormons, whether it be um, the Hebrew Israelites. They say, oh, see, see, you, you say you're just saved by grace and you can live any old way you want. We say, no, we're saved by grace. And we do perform good works, but not to cause us to be saved, but as a result 
So you see the two extremes? Because what? They're, they're unregenerate on both extremes. They're not taught by God. They're not taught by God. And so I think that's what this untaught means. Because another, and I didn't jot it down, but there's other places of Scripture that deal with this. Those that are truly taught of God. It's not even, it's not an intellectual thing. It's a, it's a regeneration. Where these things are so clear, but they're spiritually discerned. And men distort these foundational truths because these truths that he's talking about that these people are distorting, what does it result in? Eternal destruction. They are distorting the very heart of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and turning it into a license to sin. So listen to Titus chapter 2. Let's look at verses 11 through 15. And we're going to close here. A few comments after this. Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. You hear that? The grace of God. So think about what these people who mock, who, who distort God's saving grace, right? They say, I've been saved by grace and I can continue to just live in an ungodly lifestyle. That's what Peter's dealing with. Listen, Paul straightens that out right here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us. Now we see what the grace of God truly does in somebody who is regenerated. The grace of God instructing us to, uh, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for... It fits the context perfectly. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Just stop there for just a moment. You see what the grace of God does, guys, in somebody's life? The grace of God is what teaches us, motivates us to live a godly life, to reject ungodliness. Exactly opposite of what these mockers were teaching. And then not only that, but it teaches us to look for the blessed hope. None of that was a reality in my life when I was a false convert. I was not motivated. I'd have no desire to live a godly life. But guess what? I told people, I'm saved by grace. And I certainly didn't anticipate the coming of Christ. It was kind of scary thinking about that. But he goes on to say in verse 14, who, who, uh, looking, for, looking for the return of Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession zealous for good deeds. We're saved by grace, but we are zealous for good deeds. And then lastly, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Reprove or correct. And so, beloved, in closing, why should you and I take so seriously these words of Paul. Again, we're looking at the words of Paul because Peter was discussing these things that Paul wrote. Why should we be so serious about reproving or correcting these things? Because this distorting of the truth will end in somebody's eternal destruction. That's what we see in the text. And so you and I, having been taught by God through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we're now made alive with Christ. We understand the Gospel. We understand what grace is. It's not a license to sin. And so we, we confront this regularly. This, this kind of 
of distortion of God's Word. And we have to correct on both sides. No, we're saved by grace, but we believe in good works, but they're not the cause of our salvation. Yeah, we're saved by grace, but grace teaches us to live a godly life, not to run into all types of um, debauchery. And so, beloved, in closing, by way of review today, as we think about this, as we've been thinking about the last several weeks, the reality of His second coming, and I would add, I would add to that the reality of you going to Him. Us going to Him or Him coming to us. One of those two. Either one could be suddenly. And it's going to be final. You and I need to be found by Christ in godly anticipation of His return. In verse 14. We need to be people who are grateful, guys. Always remain grateful. If you find yourself getting dry and cold in your Christian life, Reflect on what God has saved you from, guys. Don't ever let your heart grow cold. Go back and think about what you deserve. We need to be people who are grateful for His saving grace in our own lives. And then which should lead us to to be motivated to proclaim that saving grace to others. And then lastly, we see we need to be found rejecting all False teaching, right? We, we correct, we rebuke, we do it in love. We reject all these things, all these things that God hates, false teaching, which damns souls, and ungodly living, which is a product of false teaching, a product of unbelief. We need to be found rejecting all these things and calling men and women to repentance and faith in Christ alone. So keep your mind set on Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. Once again, Lord, every week we look into Your Word and we're just amazed, God, at your, at how Your Word is consistent, Father, how Your Word interprets itself, how there are no contradictory teachings in Your Word, God. But Lord, how sinful men with wicked hearts distort the truth of Your Word out of a love for sin, Lord, and, 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 and blindness. And so, Father, help us to be those, God, who, who anticipate Your coming, Lord, who, who no matter what this life brings into our, into our lives through trials and tribulations, through the, un, the unsettled world that we live in, Lord, um, sickness, persecution, opposition, um, just the myriads of trials that we face in this life, God, I pray that You would help us to keep our minds set on You, that we would anticipate that which is going to be eternal. It's going to be final. It's going to be eternal. And I, and I pray that we would all invest our lives, God, our, our treasure, our time, our talents, our thoughts, that we would meditate on these things, Lord, on these eternal things that are to come. Lord, I pray that we would always be grateful for our salvation, that we would remember what we're saved from. And Lord, that we would have a heart of compassion and, and be willing to reach out to those who do not know You, Lord, even when it means correcting somebody um, and, and pointing them to the truth, Father. May we be those kind of Christians, Lord, who love our neighbor and who call those around us, Lord, and, and with love to repent and to believe the Gospel and to be saved. Father, we thank You, Lord. We just want to sing this last song to You, Lord, in response to what we've heard. 
And we just, we just pray, God, that You will draw us closer to You and closer together as a church. In Christ's name, Amen.